The book of Acts, chapter 26. Acts, chapter 26. In your Bible this morning, please. Acts, chapter 26. Here's a little bit of the background. Paul, the apostle, stands before the king, who is King Agrippa, Herod Agrippa III, actually. In those days, of course, there were regional kings. Because you were a king didn't mean you were the king of a great nation, necessarily. The nations were divided up into small regions. And Herod Agrippa was the king of Galilee and Judea. So that would have been about like the PD area of South Carolina, if you could imagine. Maybe a little larger than that, but not a great deal. And so Paul has been arrested and accusations have been made against him primarily because he has been preaching Christ and the Jewish population has risen against him and Paul stands before King Herod Agrippa III. And stand with me as you, if you will please as we read God's Word together. And in Acts chapter 26 and verse 1, then Agrippa said to Paul, Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. And Paul stretched forth his hand and answered for himself. And he gives his testimony here of how he came to know Christ as his personal Savior. And my text today is in verse 8. He asked Agrippa, Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? What a question. Why do you think it incredible beyond belief that God could raise the dead? I ask you the same question. Why would anybody in the modern world today think it incredible that God could raise people from the dead? After all, if He is God, then there should be no problem for him to raise people from the dead. If he is the one who spoke the universe into existence in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, then would it be a problem for one who could speak a universe into existence to raise a person from the dead that he had created also? If you believe Genesis 1-1, you have no problem, as I've been telling you, with the rest of the Bible. If you get by it, the rest of it will make sense to you. I thought I'd preach a little while with you standing, but you may be seated, okay? Why should it be thought a thing incredible that God could, in fact, raise the dead? For the last seven or eight weeks now, I've been preaching <clears throat> here a series on worldview. If you're a guest today, what do I mean by the word worldview? The worldview is the way that we look at life and interpret life. Our worldview is all of our background, our facts, our education combined that come together in our brains and we look out at the world and we look through a certain paradigm or we look through a certain bias, if you will, and we interpret the events of life. It's like a pair of glasses. I put on my glasses, and then everything looks different than it does when I don't have my glasses on. My worldview is I look at the events of my life, not just the spiritual world, but every part of my life. I look at my family, my home. I look at my personal life, my finances. I look at my relationships with other people. I look at all of life, and I interpret life 
through one of several ways. Now, I've been preaching, hoping to educate and train biblically and equip the people of this church that they will look at life through a biblical lens. George Barna, the Christian pollster, says that in America today, only 10% of the population of this country look at life through a biblical worldview and interpret the events of life biblically. Only 10%. That means that 90% of Americans driving up and down this highway out here look at life and interpret it in a secular or a materialistic sense rather than a Christian viewpoint. So if you accept what I'm teaching as a proposition and accept it as the truth, then, of course, that means that you're out of step with 90% of the people in the United States. Is that a bad thing or is that a good thing? Well, I think it's a good thing because we got some good company on our side today, and that is we've got the witness of the apostles, and we've got the Lord Jesus Christ, and we've got the Bible. We've got some pretty good folks on our side, have we not? And so it's my goal that every member of this church think like a Christian, interpret all the events of their life, their work life, everything about them, they interpret it from a biblical standpoint. And in doing that, I've been preaching over the last few weeks, and I've likened what I'm talking about right now to a puzzle. And uh, occasionally, not too often, have I put puzzles together. I find it about as exciting as watching wallpaper dry. But every now and then, I've been forced into having to work a puzzle, and you take all the pieces out, and you put them on the table, you turn them up, and uh, you look at the picture on the box, and you know that you're working a puzzle with a certain thing, and then you look for all the pieces that have a straight edge on them, and you arrange them, and finally you frame it in, and once you get it framed in, it starts moving faster because you can find the pieces that fit into the pieces of the frame. I have been telling you that we're building the frame for a biblical worldview. And the frame, the first piece we found that had a straight edge on it was the piece that we call God. In the beginning, God. It all starts with Him, Genesis 1.1. The second piece we have discovered is man. If we're going to look at life like a, a, a biblical worldview, then we've got to look at man as the Bible describes man. And then we found a third piece, sin. Sin came and everything changed, not only in the physical universe, but also in the spiritual world especially. And then God sent His Son, the Lord Jesus, the God-man, God in human flesh coming to the earth to provide redemption. And then Jesus went to the cross. And that was the subject last Sunday as I preached on the cross. And now today, we come to the resurrection, the sixth or seventh piece, the sixth piece, I guess, of this puzzle. The resurrection of Christ, because without the resurrection of Christ, you will look at the world entirely differently. It will shape everything that you think because I'm depending on the resurrection for my salvation and my eternal life. If Christ arose, He said, and if I live, you shall live also. 
See, there's my hope for eternity. Take that out, and when I die, I won't be any different than a, a, a bug dying. My life has no significance. But if Christ resurrected from the dead, then I have glorious hope for all of eternity in my life as well as you. So I've likened this to a story that I've been telling you over a seven or eight week period of time. Now today, the story continues beginning on Good Friday in the year 33 AD when Jesus Christ hung on a cross outside the city of Jerusalem. And he died there that day. And as the day ends, they have to hurry and take his body down because they're Jews and they're going to observe Passover at 6 o'clock. And it's now late in the afternoon, 3 or 4 o'clock, and Jesus is dead, and his bloody, beaten corpse hangs there upon that cross outside that city. A few friends come and request that they can take the body. Usually those bodies were simply cut down and either thrown in the refuse dump at the foot of the hill, or they were burned. But some of his friends, Joseph, or, uh, Joseph rather, of Arimathea, Nicodemus, Mary, some other women, they come and they request the body. And now the body, they take the body, and they hurriedly bury it. They've got to get it buried so that they will be ceremonially clean for the Passover. And three days later, the Bible says, he came out of that tomb. He, res he resurrected from the grave. When I say resurrected, you should define it because people have all kinds of terms what that means. Liberal theologians back a hundred years ago began to talk about the spiritual resurrection of Jesus Christ. The spiritual resurrection? Well, did his spirit ever die? His spirit never died. His spirit went to be with his father. He said, today I will be with you in paradise. His spirit never died. His body died. And it was his body that three days later resurrected and walked out of that tomb, ladies and gentlemen. And so Jesus Christ is alive today. We believe as Christians. Now, today I want to give you the evidence for why I believe Jesus Christ is alive. I hope you have a little note space there somewhere because I want you to get this because Satan is after our faith. He is especially after our young people attempting to destroy their faith. And I want you to write down four facts I'm going to give you today which constitute evidence that Jesus Christ is in fact alive and that he resurrected from the grave. You see, the unbeliever, the agnostic, the atheist, if you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, and be honest with yourself, you know in your heart whether you are or not, the skeptic, the atheist, the unbeliever, whomever, they look at the same evidence I look at, and they draw a different conclusion. So here we have a skeptic over here, and we have a Baptist preacher over here, and we're looking at the same facts because there's not multiple facts. The facts are the facts, aren't they? We look at the facts, but we end up with completely different conclusions. But we need facts. Because facts are what help us determine truth. What is the truth? Well, the truth is determined by the facts. It's determined by the evidence. When historians write history, how do they go back and reconstruct the past? Well, they go back and look for the earliest documents that were, that were existing at the time of whatever event they're writing about. 
What was written about this event and recorded that seems to be factual? And then secondly, they not only look at the early documents, but they take the testimony of eyewitnesses. Who were the people who actually saw the events that we were talking about? And so they take that, and then they take the voice of archaeology. Archaeology and the artifacts that they dig up, pieces of pottery and pieces of paper and, and records and books. And they take all of that, the eyewitness evidence, the documents, they take all of that and they put it together and they draw conclusions from those facts. They don't just make them up as they wish them to be. And so we are going to go back here this morning in, in the next few minutes and we're going to look at those four earliest documents that were written and we're going to look at some eyewitness accounts and draw some conclusions from that evidence, from those facts, about whether or not we can intellectually be honest and say, I believe Jesus Christ is alive. You see, I grew up in a Christian home. My dad was a, was a Baptist preacher as well as myself. And I didn't know anything else. And then I got to college over at the University of South Carolina and boy, I was hit in the face with uh, a professor who bragged in my freshman year, you may think you're a Christian when you come in here, but when you leave, you won't be. And he told an entirely different narrative from the narrative that I grew up hearing and believing. And you know what? He filled my mind with all kinds of doubts and questions. And it was later, I began to read and study, and I thought, you know what, I'm not even going to tell my mom and dad what's going on in my heart, because they will be disappointed in me. I'm going to find out for myself. And I began to study and read and search for the facts. I wanted the truth. I wanted the evidence. I didn't care what anybody else thought. I said, I'm going to find this out. And I don't know how many books I read and how much I searched. My dad had a good library, and I'd go in there and even borrow his books and look up the parts that pertain to what I was dealing with. And you know what happened to me? I became so convinced I became a Baptist preacher. Oh, my soul. You want to put a curse on anybody? Make them a Baptist preacher, huh? And here I am, 47 years later, still preaching that, and with all my soul from my head to my toe, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that He is alive today, and I base it on some facts. I asked some questions, and I got some answers. What motive did the Bible writers have to lie? They couldn't make any money. Today, somebody would want to write a book on, I was there at the resurrection. But nobody was buying your books in those days. They hadn't even invented the book yet. And so they, they weren't looking for a position because that would be a quick way. If you said on your resume, I witnessed the resurrection, that would be a quick way not to get the job in the Roman Empire, would it not? Is there any evidence that these writers distorted the facts? Not one scintilla, not one bit anywhere they had their agendas. They were biased men. They truly believed, but after all, because you believe something, because you have an opinion, doesn't mean your testimony is not reliable. If, if, God forbid, my wife were to be in a terrible accident, and I was with her in the car and witnessed the whole thing, 
And then it went to some sort of a jury trial, and they called me on the stand. I would be a very biased witness, would I not? Would that, would that mean that I didn't tell the truth, though? Not necessarily. Absolutely not. Because I have an opinion doesn't render my testimony unreliable. And because these men are survivors, well, all history is written by the survivors by definition. And so these, these men wrote what they saw and what they heard as eyewitnesses or as people very close to the scene. And there were four facts, and I give you those four facts this morning. Number one, fact number one, Jesus was dead. Dead. I mean really dead. My daddy used to say, graveyard dead. Graveyard dead? How do you get deader than dead? I don't know, but Jesus was deader than dead. He was dead. Now, you say, how do you know? Well, I'm going to look at some evidence, and I hope you'll think with me through it. What would it take to show there was an actual resurrection? You ever thought about that? Well, first of all, the the person would have to be really dead, wouldn't they, if there's going to be a resurrection? And then secondly, they would have to come alive. So using that as our base, the skeptics argue today, and they have for about 100 years, liberals in the theological world say, well, Jesus didn't really die. He wasn't completely dead. In fact, they have a name for it. If you go to college, you'll probably get confronted with it called the swoon theory. Jesus was unconscious. Because of loss of blood and dehydration and so on, he swooned. He went into this deep, unconscious state. And his friends thought he was dead, but he really wasn't dead. And when they laid him out in the tomb, the coolness of the tomb and so on, he sort of revived and after some hours. Well, that doesn't explain how he got out of that sealed tomb, but that they will use that as the argument for that he never really died, that he revived, if you will, in the tomb from unconsciousness. Was he really dead in the tomb? Well, I think he was, and I give you the evidence. Number one, he was brutally beaten. He was scourged. Now, scourging, when you and I talk about a beating, we think of somebody with a stick or something bludgeoning somebody. That wasn't a scourging of the Roman Empire. The scourging of the Roman Empire was like what you saw in The Passion of the Christ, that famous movie by Mel Gibson. It was where they had eight or nine pieces of leather, and on the end of each piece of leather was a piece of glass or a piece of metal or stone. And they put them in a handle, and then they would hit the victim over the back, and they would pull it down and literally plow the back of the victim. Scourging was so horrible that 30 to 40 percent of the people died. Think about it. You don't think of this when you read the Bible, but every one of those little thongs going repeatedly into a person's back, eight or nine of them at a time, you think of the infection that that was spreading into their system. And 30 to 40 percent of them within three or four days would be dead just from the scourging. Sometimes the lacerations were so severe, or, or the, 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 the ripping of the skin, not the laceration, but the tearing of the skin was so terrible that the internal organs would, either come, would even come loose and fall backward from the victim. It was horrible. It was torture 
beyond anything the modern man can even conceive. Jesus was beaten like that. Then they nailed him to the cross with, a big, with big nails this long. We've seen replicas of those nails. And then he hung there in the hot sun all afternoon without anything to drink, no hydration, losing blood the whole time. I described it last week. And then he looked like he was dead. And the Roman centurion called for the man who always did this and to make sure he was dead. They stabbed him in the chest with a spear. And the Bible says blood and water came out, meaning they had even pierced his chest and all the liquid there poured out from him. But that isn't even all the story there. They called an official, one of the executioners, who was frequently executing people in those days, we're told. And he came and examined Jesus Christ, and he said, He's dead. You can take him down. And then his friends took the body. I have described to you in the past what it was for them to embalm a body. They put about 80 to 100 pounds of myrrh and aloes and various compounds. By the way, those are all chemicals. We don't stop and think about that when we read the Bible. That was a chemical compound. About 100 pounds of it was slathered on his body this thick, like a paste. And then they laid him out on a cold slab, a cold piece of rock in that cave that had been dug out for a grave. And there he lay for the next 36 hours or so. He was dead. Everybody said he was dead. All the evidence would indicate that he's dead. If you're going to have, have, a, resur if you're going to have a resurrection, you've got to have somebody dead. You've got to have a corpse, a show enough graveyard dead person. Jesus met those qualifications. He was dead. Number two, fact two, the tomb was empty. The tomb was empty. Well, you say, sure it was empty, but the question is, how did it become empty? There's no record from these documents, these early witnesses. There's no record that anybody ever disturbed the tomb. In fact, I don't think anybody disturbed it. I think they were afraid to disturb it. Turn with me, please, back to the book of Matthew, chapter 27. Something that is such a big, pertinent fact, and, I, and yet I don't hear it mentioned as much as maybe we ought to talk about it, how that tomb was secured that day. Matthew, chapter 27, and beginning the reading in verse number uh, 32. Matthew 20, or pardon me, 62. Matthew 27, 62. Now, the next day that followed the day of the preparation, the chief priest and the Pharisees, that were the, that, those were his enemies, the religious opposition, they came together unto Pilate. And they said, Pilate, sir, we remember that that deceiver, referring to Jesus, we remember what he said while he was yet alive. He said that after three days I will rise again. I've always thought that's a little bit humorous. His enemies believed he was going to rise again, and his friends didn't. <laughs> but they took him at his word, didn't they? They had heard him say and prophesy his own death and resurrection, and they believed it. So they go on and say to 
Pilate in verse 64. Command, therefore, that the sepulcher, the grave, be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he's risen from the dead. And then the last error, this whole thing would end worse than it began. And Pilate said to them, you have a watch. Go your way and make it as sure as you can. So they went, and they made the sepulcher sure, secure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. Let me point out a couple things to you there that, makes, that are very important as to why and when this tomb was empty. First of all, look at the word watch. The Greek word is the same one for our word custodian. Pilate said, you have a custodian, plural. Now, what he meant was he was going going to assign 16 Roman soldiers to watch over and guard that tomb. And the way they did it is like at the tomb of the unknown soldier up in Washington, D.C. You have a group of men. They go there, and they spend about an hour each guarding the the, the, the tomb, and then they sit down, another group come up and stand at attention. Four men would have been standing in front of that tomb, according to Roman custom. They would have guarded the tomb, making sure that nobody could come or go, and then they would sit down, and four more men would come up, and thus every four hours, four men would rotate, and they would guard the tomb. All of them would participate. But it says something else. Note there in verse number 66. They sealed the tomb. They sealed the stone, the Bible said, meaning that they put a Roman seal on it, an official seal that could have only come from Pilate, the governor. And it meant that if anybody broke that seal without official permission, they could have been executed themselves by crucifixion. You didn't break a Roman seal. Absolutely not. And so... Here is Jesus' body, after I've described, dead, put into this tomb, and there he lies with 16 Roman soldiers out here guarding and a seal on the stone so that if anybody moves it, their life is under threat. And there he lies. Now, how did the tomb then become empty? His friends, of course, wouldn't go there. Turn back one chapter in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 56. That's describing his arrest a few hours before. And when he was arrested in the garden, all of his disciples fled. It says all of them forsook him. Everybody left. There wasn't one who stayed. So his friends were terrorized by this whole event. His friends weren't going to come into a tomb with 16 soldiers and a seal on the door and try to steal that body away. They'd already shown that they were timid and intimidated by this whole thing. So his friends didn't come and get him. That wouldn't even make sense. And his enemies didn't come and get him because it was their goal to keep him there. As long as that body was in that tomb, they were winning, so they thought. And their motivation was to keep him there. And his friends, of course, wouldn't come under the circumstances. What possible motive would they have anyhow to come and steal a body? There was nothing they could do with a dead body. or they could tell the story, but in time it would get out. 
I'll tell you why the tomb was empty. Nobody emptied that tomb. Jesus Christ's body was touched and filled by the Holy Spirit of God, Romans chapter 1, and raised him up in glorious power, and he walked up and pushed that stone aside and walked out of that tomb alive. That's how the tomb got empty. Number three, fact three, numerous witnesses then come and testify at great peril to themselves. Witnesses start coming forward. This was generally believed that Jesus Christ was resurrected from the grave in those days. Do you remember Peter standing on the street corner in Acts chapter 2 preaching? In the middle of his message, he makes a statement. This Jesus hath God raised up. He stood there not a mile, not one mile from where Jesus Christ had died on the cross and been buried. I've been there that site. Not one mile away from where Jesus had been buried. And he stood there that day and he proclaimed, this Jesus has God raised up. Was he preaching to a bunch of skeptics? He was preaching to the people in the town a mile from the event six weeks later that Jesus Christ died and resurrected. I'll tell you what happened. 3,000 of them stepped forward that day and were baptized to become Christians. It was pretty well accepted conventional wisdom in that community that this Jesus Christ had resurrected from the grave. But I could go on. There's plenty more evidence on that, of course. Why would the witnesses even invent a story that would get you killed for telling it? Think about that for a moment. If I had been there and witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I also have to remember that if I tell people what I saw, I may get myself killed because there's a lot of hostility toward him. In fact, they killed him. Why would they not kill those who sided with him? So the liberals read that. You know what they're saying today? If you go talk to somebody who's the skeptic, here's how they justify the witnesses. They say these witnesses were having hallucinations. They actually thought that they saw Jesus Christ. Now, Timothy Leary did a lot of studies back in the 1960s and 70s on LSD. He would give people LSD, and then they would tell him, and he would record it, what they saw under their LSD experience. And they hallucinated. The Indians used peyote out west in their worship, and they always hallucinated. They would talk about it. But here's the catch. Were the disciples on LSD? <laughs> or were they on peyote? Or, you know, marijuana or something? Were they, were, were they hallucinating and seeing something and really truly believing they had seen it for real? And the answer is, if people hallucinate, they don't all see the same thing is the only catch on that. If 10 of you sat down here and took drugs and then wrote down your report of what you hallucinated about, all 10 of you may have had a hallucination, but you wouldn't all 10 have the same one. That theory's out the window. So are the witnesses that came and said, I saw Jesus Christ, are they reliable? Turn your Bible one more time with me. And the passage is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15 and 4. 
15 and 4. And Paul here lists the witnesses, the eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, if I were a lawyer arguing my case before a jury and I had 500 people all come and give the same testimony, I'd win my case every time. You can't line up 500 witnesses and that be refuted. I don't know that that's ever been done in history. But look at the witnesses here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 4. Paul said, Christ died for our sins, verse 3, and he was buried, and he arose again the third day according to the Scripture, and then he was seen. Okay, here's the eyewitnesses. Cephas, that's Simon Peter. Peter was an eyewitness. He saw the living Christ. Then of the twelve, and you know that all twelve of the apostles met with Jesus Christ the following Sunday, and all twelve of them testified as eyewitnesses. After that, he was seen of above, we don't know how far above, but more than 500 brethren at one time. I believe that they met with Jesus Christ up in the Galilee, and he preached to them out in a meadow on a hill somewhere. Over 500 people being in the congregation. And he says most of them still live 30 years later, but some of them have died. Verse 7, after that he was seen of James. Who was James the eyewitness? That was not James the apostle, the fisherman. This is James, his half-brother. This is the James that grew up in the same home with Jesus Christ and said, I do not believe that he is the Son of God. He is my brother. We slept in the same room. We played together. We swam down there in the Lake of Galilee. We went fishing together as little boys. No, he's not the Son of God. And he was a skeptic until the day of the cross. And he looked at Jesus Christ. His heart was torn, and James became a believer of Jesus Christ. He subsequently wrote the book of James, which you have in the back of your New Testament, the half-brother's witness to the death of his older brother and the resurrection. James met him and talked to him and became a convinced believer. And then all the apostles. And that means more than the 12 disciples that we think about. There were many apostles, and we don't know how many there were, but there's an indefinite number of people that followed the Lord to the death, and they saw him that day and witnessed to him. And then... Verse 8, last of all, he was seen of me also as of one born out of due time or due season. Paul said, I was the last one. And Paul's story is in the book of Acts, chapter 9, and two other times it's repeated. Now, he was going up the road, and Jesus Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus, and he had a conversation with him, and he became a believer. He had been the persecutor of the Christians. He hated Christianity. He was putting people in jail for their testimony. And now the skeptic and the hater of Christianity becomes the greatest Christian in all of its history, writing half your New Testament. Those are the numerous witnesses who testified at peril to themselves. There's a fourth fact real quickly. 
and that is that many skeptics were converted. I've already told you part of it. Thomas was one of his disciples, and he said, I'm not going to believe unless I can put my finger into his nail prints in his hand. So the next Sunday they met, and uh, Jesus said, Thomas, did you really say that? I did, Lord. Well, come up here. Put your finger there. You see that hole? You see this hole in my side where that spear went in and where the gash is in my side? You said you wouldn't believe unless you could touch me and see. All right, Thomas, let's have your hand. He became a pretty convinced believer. After that, he went to India and began to preach the gospel. And one day they arrested him and they tied his wrist with chains and hooked him up to some, a team of horses. And they drug him through the streets of an Indian city until he was dead and until all the flesh had been torn from his bones. But he didn't recant because he saw and was convinced. And James was arrested for preaching, and they stoned him, but he didn't recant. And Paul, the great apostle, was arrested. He didn't recant. And they laid his head on a log, and they took a sword and chopped it off up in Rome. But he wouldn't back up on what he had seen. If Had he recanted, he could have saved his life. Witnesses who were skeptics, and they became converted. I'll tell you about just one today. Lou Wallace was in the Union Army during the Civil War in the United States. He became a general. He became then, after the war, the senator from Indiana. And then the president of the United States appointed him to be the first governor of New Mexico Territory. He was a known atheist, a hater of Christianity. And he began to study, and his studies were with the intent of trying to write a book that would destroy Christianity forever. And as he studied, he went to some of the finest libraries in both Europe and in the United States. And he studied and he actually looked at original documents in Rome and other places. And when he was confronted with the indisputable evidence, I quote him. Lou Wallace said, after six years, given to the impartial investigation of Christianity as to its truth or falsity, I have come to the deliberate conclusion Jesus Christ was the Messiah of the Jews, the Savior of the world, and my own personal Redeemer. End of quote. And he wrote a book, Ben-Hur. Did you notice the subtitle? A Tale of the Christ. One of the most famous novels in all of English writing, the history of English writing. You've seen the movie, you've read the book. The title has been her about a slave, but it's about Jesus Christ who became his Savior. Now, I don't know where you are today in your Christian experience or in your spiritual life. I know what I had to do to deal with my doubt I had to study. 
You see, so much of our culture today is so feeling-oriented. I'm not against feelings, but I don't make my decisions based on feelings. When people say, I'm going to make a decision, and they tell me, I just feel that way, look out, you're cruising for problems, friend. You make your decisions from your mind. You make your decisions, if they're sound decisions, your feelings have nothing to do with it. You make your feelings based on facts, on evidence, on reality. As a college boy, I had to go back and do all that and confirm to myself, I really do believe this stuff. Do you really believe this stuff? Are you just here today because it's Easter Sunday, it's a Sunday in April, and people are supposed to go to church on this day? I wouldn't come if that was the only reason I had for it. Do you, have you looked at the evidence? And do you believe the evidence? Do you know why you believe? Old Job, writing thousands of years even before Christ, said this, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand in the latter day upon the earth. And after these skin worms have consumed this body of mine, I will see him in my flesh. I believe that today I'll see him in my flesh. I hope you believe that based upon the evidence, the facts, the eyewitnesses, the documents, the artifacts, and the mountain of evidence that says Jesus Christ is alive and the Son of God, the Savior of mankind. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.